Solar, the grid, and New York State's next 20 years, or getting past the greenwash. In the 1800s, Eunice Foote first demonstrated that CO2 in the air would significantly increase the amount of heat captured from the sun's rays. She did this basically with a couple of test tubes and a couple of thermometers. As someone who enjoys winter, a lack of inundation from climate refugees, and living within my values, I would like to understand my carbon footprint and hit net zero well in advance of 2050. Although an electric vehicle provides a purchasable answer for transportation, as a renter I have less control over how I heat my living space and water or of my electricity. Sort of asking my landlord to put in heat pumps, and I hear there's a shortage anyway, so good luck with that, uh, my best option might be to build or buy a freestanding solar installation, which I could use to offset my natural gas, oil-based, or coal-based power consumed. We can start by looking on electricitymaps.com and see that the state of New York has about 75% non-renewables for an average output of 271 grams of CO2 emitted per kilowatt hour of energy produced. Compare this to France, which comes in at 66 grams per kilowatt hour. The obvious thing to do would be for me to install solar panels on a rocky field somewhere and sell the power to bring myself to net zero. But there's some nuance to it. There is a spread between the price I pay for electricity as a consumer and what I could sell it for as a producer. This is necessary in order to maintain a distribution network to move that power around between buildings, and because the sun must still supply power, or sorry, the grid must still supply power when people need it, as opposed to only when the sun is out. The historical way utilities have handled this is with a policy called net metering, which looks at your average monthly power consumption and charges you the normal rate. This is, of course, unsustainable. It treats the grid as a free and infinite energy bank for your house, of which it is neither. Many states and countries have been having to discontinue their programs uh, of this sort of net metering, and it can cause people to become pretty upset. A 33-kilowatt installation in New York State costs about $100,000 out of pocket, and about 60% of that comes back as tax credits when you next file. Just a note here, when I say 33 kilowatts, I'm referring to the DC power rating, so 127 to 360 watt panels sums up to 33 kilowatts. Um, the actual amount of kilowatt hours produced in a year is going to be a different number. A small house would use about a 6 kilowatt solar installation, and a large one could use two or three times that, especially if there's air conditioning or electric vehicle charging. Uh, and in the blog post, I have a, a chart of the economics broken down for net metering. Um, this is the case where power is used on site, so imagine that you get the same cost in producing the power as you would get in purchasing it. Um, and you can see that for 33 kilowatts installed, you generate about 100 kilowatt hours in a day and 37 megawatt hours in a year. And uh, let's see, with an average retail price of 20 cents, you get an average income of about $20 a day or $7,000 a year. Um, but that's the amount you'd save by not buying it, not the amount you get by selling it. New York State has put a great deal of effort into solving the net metering problem in order to allow photovoltaics at scale. 
they have replaced uh, standard net metering with a new pricing model they called val value stack. This is a fairly complex model, which bakes in many factors, such as region within the state and renewable energy credits. The above revenue is roughly cut in half with their new model, and you can check it out for uh, yourself on their spreadsheet. I'll, I'll, I'll note here that other states are doing this differently, like California has one net metering rule, Vermont has another, um, and it's all this compromise between sort of keeping people happy with like the ability to add photovoltaics and the laws of reality and, and what the grid can do. There are ways to improve the economics here, such as installing a two-axis mount uh, so that the solar panels always face the sun, and that promises a 40% improvement on power generation in return for some, to me, unknown maintenance factor. Finally, of course, you can sell whole po wholesale power on the electricity auction. Uh, this auction is run by your local ISO, usually if you're in ISO region, but I won't get into that. Um, this is where the utilities bid in a sort of Dutch auction to see who can provide power in the coming five minute interval for the cheapest rate. An additional layer of complexity, called a capacity auction, also allows bids on a further out time horizon, such as a day, instead of the next five minutes. However, membership in this auction costs a good chunk of change, I think about 5000 a year, but I'm not sure, and, and the rates one would receive are lower than what you'd get from value, strat, value stack or net metering. Um, selling to the auction would be known as uh, selling to the wholesale we're selling to the value stack as selling to the distribution network. Let's talk about politics for a second. Uh, lovely. Uh, one thing that's become clear to me doing this research is that it can seem like everyone has something bad to say about whatever power source is not their preference. Photovoltaics are an eyesore, wind turbines kill birds, nuclear waste is dangerous, oil will roast the planet, hydro hurts fish, and so on. Although, as I think of it, nobody has anything yet bad to say about uh, tidal energy, but we'll see. And these are generally all true to some degree, which puts us in the precarious position of trying to rank one person's needs against another. Fun. Rather cynically, one could imagine that photovoltaics have a large amount of federal funding, not only because they are renewables, which are demonstrating forward progress along the technological readiness scale, but also because they're one of the least effective at scale, and therefore non-threatening to the status quo. That I, by least effective, I mean they take up a large amount of area, and uh, what other? The most, most, mostly area, cost, and, and timing considerations, like they only work when the sun is out. If you're really going to pay for lobbyists, you'll have them focus on things like nuclear, which really could effectively take oil out of the system, as France has demonstrated for decades. Okay, on to federal tax credits. That being said, um, there are a good number of tax incentives for solar, which makes them a great choice for those paying a lot of federal income tax. Um, and I linked to a PDF in the blog post. Um, in short, you get about 60% of your upfront cost back within one year. Most of that is in the form of investment tax credits, which can be either claimed directly or resold to another party. They can even be applied to earnings from the previous year or spread out over the following five or six years. One interesting approach, knowing this, would be to scale up this solar installation that I'm considering beyond my own personal financial uh, abilities with a wide-scale community action. 
So if you're interested in offsetting some of your income tax and, and want to contribute to the project, please get in touch. The actual rates of return to expect are sort of de to be determined and based a lot on what state we build in and, and, and what technology is used. Saying that, let's look at New York State's 20-year plan. NYISO, the company which keeps New York State utilities talking to one another, has recently published their first ever 20-year plan. It is impressive to see them responding to our growing climate crisis in this way, and you can see their neat little 20-minute podcast on their plan before diving into the massive PDF. The most interesting part to me was this particular stacked bar chart, which shows the New York State electricity makeup in years to come. Major growth is predicted due to a switch to electric for electric vehicles and heating. And in the chart, you can see in, in 2021, we used about 40 gigawatts. Um, by 2030, it's showing 60 gigawatts. And then in 2040, it doubles from there to 120 gigawatts. Um, and I'll sort of note some, some of the things you see in this, in this chart is that um, particularly the last five years are notable. Um, in, in order to do this, this going from 60 to 120 gigawatts, um, a large chunk is made up of this purple box called dispatchable energy free, or sorry, dispatchable emission free resources or DEFRS. Um, but in layman's term, that's essentially a big battery. Uh, and it's important because neither solar nor wind can fit the bill for on-demand energy, uh, and, and they, they just show up when the sun's out or the wind is blowing. Um, but notably, in, in the report from NYISO, the storage technology has yet to be invented at an economically feasible and scalable manner. Here's their quote exactly. They say, uh, all existing fossil f generators are assumed to be retired to achieve the CLCPA target for a zero emission grid and are replaced by dispatchable emission free resources. These resources represent a proxy technology that will meet the flexibility and emissions free energy needs of the future system, but are not yet mature technologies that are commercially available. Some examples include hydrogen, renewable natural gas, and small modular nuclear reactors. We can also see oil in orange disappearing suddenly in a five-year span at the end, which is handled, according to the report, by out-of-state imports. Um, but what those are remains to be determined. So in wrapping this up, I'm going to add my two cents to the picture. Um, I see a couple things that make sense given, given where we are and given what we need. Um, it's obvious that we need to continue researching energy storage. Um, there are many competent people working on this. Um, and I link out to a couple, such as uh, Matt Farrell has a video on, on thermal storage. Um, but of course, there's not a great way to turn that into energy yet, but that's more useful for heat. Um, and there's other companies out there that are, that are sort of working on the nanomaterials scale to try and make this possible. Um, this could be a good future post, potentially. And then, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm particularly excited about what if you were to couple, say, nuclear power with something called direct air capture. Um, it's a pretty damn safe bet to say that we will not get uh, by a couple decades or more without producing any CO2. Many chemical and industrial processes generate CO2. In answer to this, direct air capture plants are being developed, a couple of companies are Carbon Engineering and Climeworks, 
and in some cases are already operating on volcano power. These plants absorb carbon from the atmosphere and dump it back into oil wells as liquid. That's pretty damn cool. Uh, and here I have a chart of um, sort of our carbon sequestration needs thanks to striped climate. You can see that a lot of what we can do is, is, is emissions reduction, but some processes we can't, we can't reduce fully, and we need to cover that gap with carbon removal. And it just shows how much carbon we need to remove over what year. Um, and as we, as we likely know, uh, nuclear can generate a large amount of power, but it cannot be scaled up or down very responsively. And the day-to-day -day needs of humans are much, are much more uh, volatile than, than nuclear can answer for. To me, this seems like a, a potentially great match. Instead of building expensive batteries, we could just um, have, have direct air capture and have it scale up when power is not needed by people's homes and, and vice versa. Presumably, the DAC would be more scalable than would be the nuclear plant itself. I guess all this is to say, I wish I could get an at-home nuclear reactor and an at-home direct air capture module, but I probably can't. The price tag on, 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 on air capture is around 0.7 to 1.2 billion, um, according to the paper from Carbon Engineering, so I'll probably stick with solar unless I have some very clever ideas. That's all for now. What do you think? Um, and then in the blog post, I go into a few FAQ questions, such as, does solar actually save CO2 when manufacturing costs are included? Um, there's plenty of rumors going around, like wind turbines produce more CO2 in construction, aka scope 2 emissions, than they will ever save, and similar smear on solar, and so on. Although there are, of course, disadvantages to those two types of renewables, it's, it doesn't look like it's in CO2 emission. And, and here's a, uh, the table in the report from the 2018 IPCC report, Chapter 7, where we see that <clears throat> if you look at grams of CO2 emitted per kilowatt hour generated, coal comes in uh, between 600 and 1600, oil between 500 and, and 1100, natural gas between 300 and 900, and then much lower than that, you have photovoltaics at around 20 to 200, nuclear around 4 to 100, and wind around 7 to 60. Um, so that it really is a significant savings, even with, with scope 2 and uh, scope 3 emissions factored in as best as we know it today. Um, you might also be wondering, how much space will this all take? So. The NYSERDA report calls for 200,000 gigawatt hours per year in 2040, with uh, 4 to 20 percent of that covered by utility-scale photovoltaic. And I say utility here because that means it's not on people's roofs. Um, 200,000 gigawatt hours in 2040 spend times 3 acres per gigawatt hour per year times 4 to 20 percent equals about 24,000 to 120,000 acres covered by solar panels in just the state of New York. Now, trying to put this into perspective, uh, the state of New York is 35 million acres in total. So we'd be looking at about 0.06 to 0.3% of New York State's land area would be covered in solar panels. But this still really doesn't tell me too much in terms of like, what does it look like when I'm going around? And, and so I, I decided to put this in the context of how much area we have covered in roads. 
So in New York State, we have 250,000 lane miles. And I sort of fudged, I figure it's about 13 feet per lane. Um, as standard widths are about 10 feet, and then you add some for the shoulder. Um, and so we have about 400,000 acres of roads in New York State, or about 1% of the state is covered in road. Um, so 400,000 acres of roads, at most 120,000 acres of solar, at least 25,000 acres of solar. Um, so about a quarter as much solar as there are roads. And the other thing I thought would be fun would be to sort of look at the amount of space used up by oil refineries and oil storage and, 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 and see how much of this if you, re, you can just replace with solar panels. Um, but New York State doesn't have any oil refineries, so I couldn't do that particular conversation, uh, uh, comparison. Um, in my opinion, there, there certainly may be more space-efficient solutions, um, but also it doesn't seem like an impossible comparison given the scale of our existing infrastructure projects and roads, although it is a very large project. Okay, question number three. What about recycling solar panels? Like once we have all these out there, isn't this going to be a huge problem? Well, glad you asked. Solar panels are mostly glass, and some facilities in recycling solar, some facilities focus in recycling solar specifically. Note first, however, panels will keep running long after their 25-year lifespan. I have a friend who had his panels installed in 1987 and had a peak day last year, 34 years later. If you want to see more about recycling, there are many good examples, including on YouTube, um, and I have a link to the one by the Veolia Group, which is uh, based out of France where they go into their facility and show how it works. And last question is, you might be wondering if we're better off putting our solar in the southwestern United States where it's sunny all the time. And indeed, there's a good argument for that. Like, you get a lot more energy per panel from these sunny areas um, and a lot more electricity per dollar invested. You're also not covering up potential farmland. Unfortunately, moving that power from across one state to another across the country is what I would call a grade A coordination problem. It's on the federal level. As such, it will move at the speed of mud. I really enjoyed this, this post and, and, and podcast about the subject from the, the Substack Volts, um, where he starts talking about how FERC and, and uh, sort of the federal level is involved in making this happen. Um, the upshot is that, like, for natural gas pipelines, the federal government will use eminent domain if they need to and just be like, we're putting a pipeline here. Whereas they don't, there is not the same precedent for high voltage power lines, and it needs to go through an approvals process of each and every state. And of course, each state is legally required to uh, represent their own interests and the interests of their people. That's their job as a government. And so they, the, most states, if they're not getting the power themselves wouldn't permit one to go through. Um, it would be interesting to see this legislated on sort of common good grounds, um, but I have yet to see someone take up that argument. For what it's worth, though, I have heard of high-voltage lines being planned from Australia to Singapore and from Morocco to the UK. So somehow it's easier to build them internationally, it seems, uh, maybe just because they're such a large program and you can work for the whole co uh, country's interest at once. Okay, um, that's all I have to say on this particular topic. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you all later.